0: Good morning, afternoon, and evening, and welcome to the eighty-three eleven cast, your premier Midwestern base sports podcast. Bring you all things sports to your beautiful ears. Join your hosts Kyle Mersh, Mike Ludwig, and Wyatt Teeter as we talk about college basketball and the NFL with our big game preview, and of course, our signature segments: Mike stupid rules and write that down predictions here on episode two hundred and fifty-seven.
1: So, the Big Twelve this past weekend announced a, I guess, partnership with Mexico. Uh, They're calling it the Big 12 Mexico. So, or the Big 12 in Mexico. So what they're planning to do is they're going to do a doubleheader where two men's and women's programs for now will play a uh, basketball game in Mexico City for at least this next season, still within the year 2024, will be played on December 14th of 2024 in Mexico City. Uh, games will be played at their main arena, which is the same venue that hosts the NBA Mexico City games as well. Uh, in this partnership, next season, KU in Houston will be making their way down there, so both men's and be- women's basketball programs will be playing then. Uh, and the Big 12, Mexico will continue to host men's and women's games Uh, women's and women's basketball games in 2025 with other schools to be announced uh, soon and shortly. So one big thing to note here, um, obviously, with all this conference realignment and with what the Big Ten and the SEC is, with their media rights and how big the brand and the name is, the Big 12 is leaning on basketball, which has been its calling card for the past couple of seasons. Uh, definitely is its calling card this season and getting some more national media and audiences um, to view some of these games. Now, clearly they picked one of the, you know, blue bloods, obviously, to go and play the first game there. One of the better known teams potentially uh, across the, you know, in different areas of the world based on their winning percentage, how often they're played on national teams television, yada, yada, and then Houston, which obviously has, you know, close proximity and ties with Mexico being really close to the border um, between the United States and Mexico. So that's what we have going on. I think it's a great, you know, idea for the big 12 to get their name out there, get some more viewership in some of these games and kind of raise awareness to college basketball, much so much like, the NFL and the NBA is doing uh, with global branding um, and ambassador deals with different countries. Obviously, in the NFL, we saw Germany this year. Mexico City has been a staple. London has been a staple for a while, and they're looking at different areas to come. So, you know, kind of big news coming out of the Big 12. Um, The only thing that I thought was a hesitancy and a drawback was it's tough to take away big games like that from college basketball environments. Um, especially a potentially top 10 matchup as it was this year between KU and Houston. So that's one downside, but December 14th is a key date there as that is very close to, um, you know, the winter break uh, and off season for students. So at that point it's mostly, you know, either students who are staying on campus or coming back or just normal patrons who attend games too. So Yeah. Any other thoughts on that?
2: I mean, I, my thoughts, same as yours, is now we're going to be splitting up conference play, um, too, potentially, if that game is happening in mid-December. There's usually non-conference games through the end of December, so that could create an uneven start to conference play, which I don't love. That's my biggest takeaway, So I don't love splitting conference play.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. The Big Ten schedule has always seemed a little It's wonky. weird.
2: It's uh, weird. Yeah, it's definitely when, weird when they do two games early like that.
1: But it I think it does overall help the Big 12 in its branding and hopefully keeps the Big 12 in a strong position uh going forward um with all of the conference shifting and realignment that is going on. Uh I personally would hate to see the Big 12 broken up, but you know, being a Big 12 fan for Virtually my entire lifetime, K-State transferred to Iowa State, so yeah, that, that'd that be tough for me to see. But other than that, getting into the action that happened this past week, Mike, that might have been one of the craziest games we've probably witnessed in Iowa State history as of late, and it's it saw a lot of abnormalities. First of all, Scott Drew got tossed, first time in his career, for technicals that were very I guess maybe borderline no, no, deserving
2: the, so, so I've got a take on that the okay. first one was Go very course. deserving because sure. the ball was in play and he charges out at an official well the ball is in play on that side of the court to argue about something that's technical worthy right sure. if the yeah. ball's not in play or not on that side of the court I'm gonna give him a pass but he cannot be out where he was yelling at an official while the ball is in play on that side of the court. That's not acceptable.
1: I I, I will agree with that one. I guess the second one maybe more so was borderline, especially since it was the official under the basket who called that tee um, rather than the official nearest Drew at that point.
2: I agree. The second one is more borderline, and here's the reasoning by it. So the coach's box is a point of emphasis this year. In college basketball, especially when somebody's already been teed up for a coaching box violation, right? Being teed up for in part of a coaching box violation in his first technical foul, right, made it so, according to the rules, again, how rarely this is enforced we can talk about. But according to the rules, once you're already teed up for that, you now have a zero tolerance policy for coaches box violations if you look at the replay he is outside of the coach's box for yes, that that's why he, he got that technical He
1: takes a step and then goes to a knee and is yell barking at the official some more so yeah i see why he got it yes, but it's,
2: it's a it's a soft technical foul but by the rules since he'd already been teed up for being out of the coach's box that is technical foul worthy by the rules should it be we Can debate, but again, as we've said time and time again on this podcast, the official's job is to enforce the rules, not what we think the rules should be.
1: Right, that is fair. But that part sparked a 20 to nothing run, which is another unprecedented, um, in our Iowa State fandom as well. It's something that you rarely see at any level of basketball, um, though, well, yeah, I guess depending on the competition disparity. But certainly in the Big 12 that is not something you see very often. Uh technical foul free throws obviously played a big role into it as coach Drew got his second technical, was ejected from the game. Shortly thereafter Baylor's bench gets a technical, uh and gets free throws as well on top of a foul call. So there's, you know, a huge point swing there in and of itself. But credit Baylor, they held on, they stemmed that, you know, emotional roller coaster in the second half and were able to hang on to what was heartbreak in the end for the Cyclones. But I mean, one of the, one of the big issues all game long with, well, first half, we cleaned it up a little bit in the second half, offensive rebounds. We were getting obliterated in the first half, um, in that department, and then Baylor shot the lights out from three, which they are a good three-point shooting team. Um, but not many teams shoot that well from three all night long. Uh, what was it? They shot 52% from three, 12 of 23 in the end. And
2: be- better than that in the first half. Again, the problem Correct. in this game was most certainly the first half. Y- you mentioned they cleaned up those offensive rebounds. Baylor had 11 offensive rebounds just in the first half, but they only ended with 13, right? So the and same, Baylor was shooting over 60% from three in the first half and finished at 52, like you said. So the Cyclones definitely cleaned up their play all around in the second half. It just wasn't right. enough. It was too little yeah, too late.
1: It light. it definitely wasn't enough. I mean the the best you know outlier in the cyclone's favor here was points off of turnovers. They were 20, positive 26 to baylor's 13 but um, that's forced... normal that's exactly like, that
2: is what the cyclones do neither of those are uh, outlandish for the Cyclones.
1: and it's and it's a i think it might be one of the first games we've lost this season when we forced a team to above their like season average in turnovers and we had fewer turnovers and then we lost that game so Baylor had 18 turnovers in this game, which is well above their season average. Um, if I hear at their team stats, uh, they, they, they average they 11.1 only... 1 per game. So yeah, that's well they... above their average. And we only had 11, which we cleaned up in the second half. But really that first half was too little too late. And then once we got a lead in the second half, we just didn't have enough offense to put them away.
2: And to me, the problem with that was, was assisting Iowa State... Had uh, ten total assists in this game on, 22 on twenty yeah. yeah. two made field goals. Only
1: twenty two made field goals. That's
2: that's not that's not great. I expect more, especially from Lipsy. He only had three assists in that game. Um, he usually averages much much better than that. And Lipsy, or, sorry, and uh, Gilbert two assists to go along with four turnovers. Um, so the assisting was just not there as well.
1: I think the thing that's starting to grind my gears a little bit with this Iowa State team is how careless we are with the basketball and fundamentals in critical moments of games. Um, At the end of that game, yes, one of Baylor's players got injured, but Gilbert throws a lazy pass into the corner that the injured player was able to hobble his way down the court and intercept. Uh there was a another lazy pass up on the perimeter that led to a run out. Um, basket for Baylor to kind of get the momentum back. And it's the passing just isn't crisp and sharp when it needs to be. Um and those are fundamentals. That's just coaching and putting your players in, in the right position and reminding them in the huddles. So some of that lackadaisicalness, I I do put on the coaching staff, not the players, but I do feel like sometimes we are care- too careless with the basketball, and that's you know completely opposite of the style that we're trying to play. We force other people into hurried mistakes and to be careless with the basketball, and we need to control it and handle it, especially if we're not going to be an offensive, you know juggernaut,
2: um, which we are. Still, better than last
1: year. I, I was going to say, still though, we are better than last year in that category, but it's just much of the same. You know, yeah. we and- we have to limit teams you know, breakaway opportunities and easy buckets and in the first half we got killed with poor trans like rotational defense and a ton of wide open threes again similar to that BYU game. And I, I think Mike you echoed the same sentiment. I messaged the the group chat and I said was this possibly the worst half of basketball in reference to our first half that we had played all season like, with the exception of maybe one of the two halves the against BYU. against
2: BYU, yeah, yeah, where we just absolutely melted down. Um, yeah, and to me, right, the thing was, you knew what Baylor was. They were a team who was going to offensive rebound the ball well. They're 18th in the nation in offensive rebounding the ball. And they were going to shoot the three ball well, right? And you just let them do both of those things at will. Right, like it's not like they were making tough threes in the first half. They were just open all the time, right? Like they didn't have any of those threes where it's like, man, you'll let them take that shot, you know, if when, if they want. It's like no, they were just wide open time and time again. You basically let Baylor play the game they wanted to play in the first half, and you weren't able to recover. And on the, the flip side, on the three point shooting for the Cyclones. Gilbert, who had a phenomenal game, by the way, with the exception of the four turnovers, had an incredible game. But he was the only Cyclone to make a three. He went five of six from three. Nobody else made a three. The rest of the team was O of eight from three, um, including, hey, remember when we said Trey King should stop shooting threes? He was O for two from three. He only had two points um, in that uh, game. He was a major I disappointment. I cringe
1: every time our a broadcaster says uh, Curtis Jones. And sharpshooter. He's a shooter. Uh, as, I wouldn't as, say he's the same shooter, same words in the same sentence. It, mm-hmm. It's just he hasn't been that for this team. Yes, he's had like three or four pretty decent games in a row, but um he's and, streaky, much like yeah. Gabe Kalsher was. Uh yep. so it's there's just not that consistency there. Um and then for what it's worth, momchilovich has been near deadly in the mid range but from three he's kind of um regressed he's, a little bit throughout or
2: he's he's still shooting 40 percent from three on the year which is is good i will take that but yeah he was not good he was almost one for three though we haven't mentioned it right that he was I know. 0.1 seconds away from banking in the game winner at the buzzer yeah. The the handoff from Trey King just wasn't quite clean. It put too much of a hitch in that shot for I'm to sure that you had, had to catch it,
1: catch it at his, at his hip. Yeah, at his and,
2: knee instead of at yeah. his chest.
1: Well, I, I do want to talk about that. So the ending of that game was crazy. So Baylor had the ball. Well, we had just lipsy yep. drove. Yep, exactly. drove. We had just scored to tie it. Baylor uh looked like they were trying to call a timeout. They saw an open lane. They went in and drove on Trey King, banked in the shot to to take the two-point lead with the foul. So they shot a free throw. Well, they missed that free throw. They did. And the box should start when it the rebound when the whoever touches the ball first. Correct. Right? And so The clock started too early. Yeah,
2: because Trey King smartly, smartly. Let it bounce. Let it bounce, right? Because he knows that, right? That was a heads-up play by Trey King. He let it bounce because he knew Baylor wasn't coming hard after that rebound in that situation. So he wanted to let it bounce to let his guards get some forward momentum with only two seconds left to try to get that shot off. That was a heads-up play by Trey King.
1: Very true. So that happens. The clock has already started correct? At this point. And so the officials note that and they blow the play dead. Uh, At this point the the buzzer had already gone off and Baylor was cheering. That's besides the point. So it goes to review for a clock malfunction, right? So in that, they did explain they did some sort of math and subtraction. They said there was 0.7 and then it took 0.5 seconds something. They got it back to 1.2 seconds, right? I don't know where that math came from. So here's my thing. I don't know where that math came from, and I don't know why we didn't just give it two seconds, basically treated dead ball under the basket. But they gave us the sideline then, too, which was a big advantage compared to under the basket.
2: Yeah, so right, the way they did it, and this is correct, right? Since it was a live ball situation, right? If the clock stops improperly in a dead ball situation, if the clock starts improperly in a dead ball situation, right, then they just then just go back to where it was, right? But since it was a live ball situation, essentially everything that happened while the ball was live before the official blew it dead, right, has to count because it was live it was properly a live ball. Right. So during that, we did like an outlet pass to get it to the sideline. So that's why it was a sideline inbounds there. And then the way they did the timing, right? is essentially they said what time was on the clock when they blew it dead. That's where they got the 0.7 from. Then they said how much time went off the clock before Trey King caught the ball. They said it was 0.5 seconds. There you get your 1.2. That was properly officiated. That was a good
0: explanation because it made zero sense to me. Yeah, that
1: was a great explanation.
2: Yeah, every since it was properly a live ball, everything that happened prior to the official blowing his whistle has to stand. And essentially the math said, yeah, essentially there were point eight seconds that that happened between when Trey King actually touched the ball and the official blew the whistle.
1: That is fair. So for all of our fans out there, uh, (laughs) congrats on getting a double dose of my stupid rules
0: that or this triple
2: week, dose. So. Cause I already explained why he got two technical fouls. True.
0: Triple so. dose. There you have it in all of it today. I love it.
2: And. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I want to say about this game is the free throw shooting is what got us. Um, it was also bad. It was what I think it was 58% from the line. I closed the box score.
1: It was uh, bad. 59. Do we need to look at that? <laughs> yeah.
2: 59. Um, some of that I'll give this team a pass for, just because um
1: Uh, rob jones shot a lot of free throws throws, yes
2: rob jones was four for ten the rest of the team was a respectable ish 15 for 22 like you would still like them to be better than 15 of 22 which is 68 percent but that's at least respectable that's at least your season average Right. And then
1: Hassan Ward, I believe, had four attempts and he was two he was, of four. He
2: was one for two. The for real killers were Lipsy's two of four and Gilbert's five of eight. We need those two to shoot better, free, better from the free throw line than that.
1: I was going to say the, the one thing that would have changed the entire end of the game and how it was played. If Lipsy had hit those two free throws rather than us being down two with Lipsy having to go and get the game tying shot it would have been a 68-68 to 68 scenario
0: with
2: mm-hmm. Baylor having have, the ball. We would have been holding for one.
1: Yep, exactly.
2: Yep. Anyway, so. crazy game, a lot to digest. In the end, though, not a bad loss. Our, our net ranking went over up. the course of the weekend, we fell one. We were 10 oh. going into it. We're now 11. Nothing to be ashamed sorry. of. By
1: the, sorry, The Ken, our Ken Palm ranking actually went from 15 to 14 yes. immediately following the game.
2: Yes, our Ken Palm went up. So, again, you like to win, but this was far from a bad loss. Yeah. Looking ahead, and then
1: I, I was going to say one more thing. So for, for all of our people out there, I know Fran Fraschilla has been doing, t- doing the numbers uh, a lot. But he says in these matchups, he looks ahead to the end of the season. Do you get them again for a chance at revenge? We do not. That was our only matchup versus Baylor. So next time we would potentially see them would be the Big 12 tournament.
2: Yep which maybe we will. Who knows? But the season keeps rolling along either way. Um, On Tuesday is the Cyclones' next game. It's at Texas, 7 p.m. That game is only on Longhorn Network, which presumably most of us don't get. So you might be uh, listening to the call on the radio um, for that one, which you can get on multiple apps or from just Cyclones.com, by the way, if you don't live in a market that has an actual radio station um, for that. Um, and then the second game is on Saturday, 1 p.m. against Cincinnati, a home game on ESPN2. Cyclones will likely be favored in both of these games. It would be a huge um, recovery week if we could win both of those games, especially at Texas.
1: Well, and watch out for Cincinnati, though. That's the one thing I will say. Uh, Texas Tech, before going into this week, was the in first place in the Big 12. And then Cincinnati proceeded to go into Lubbock and beat them. So, um chaos in the big 12 continues so not in not an easy easy home game that you can take your foot off the gas so keep it up and with that as we previewed last week the super bowl is this weekend what is it super bowl 57
2: uh, something like that i don't know yeah, yeah. one of those
1: Seems some of those it's it's a number up there uh that is this week this coming weekend uh as the chiefs obviously take on the san francisco 49ers um you know the chiefs are in a weird position as they have to be in their afc rivals um you know facilities all week as they are the home team so they get that that advantage and that perk of the super bowl uh but you know it's at as it goes the chiefs are back in it they they already have the you know schedule of events that they're they're used to being a returning team to the super bowl and now four out of the past five years they have also been in it so it's somewhat of a routine for them uh but the san francisco 49ers are back in it it is a rematch of the 2020 super bowl um that featured jimmy garoppolo and a lot of this a lot of the similar faces there on the 49ers team with additions. Obviously Brock Purdy being one and Christian McCaffrey who is their uh coveted um deadline trade last season. And then for the Chiefs, a lot of new faces um on this team except for Mahomes and Kelsey are the and Chris Jones are the you know the the steady Eddie, so to speak on this team um from that that Super Bowl. So We're going to dive into it a little bit. Mike and I are going to talk about, you know, some of the keys to the game and obviously just talk about it a little bit further. Um, But a few keys to the game that I have and we'll we'll see maybe what your thoughts are, Mike. So for the Chiefs, obviously, defense is going to be, you know, important. I, I think a lot of people are starting to expect that this could be a shootout. I don't know if the Chiefs have enough offensive firepower to do that, so the Chiefs' defense and their game plan against the 49ers and their weapons is going to be huge. Um, I do think, however, on the flip side of the coin, since the Chiefs are going to focus so much on stopping the run game that includes Christian McCaffrey and limiting his big playability, Brock Purdy's legs are going to be a big difference maker in this game. Um, We saw it in the second half um, with the 49ers against the Detroit Lions, that Brock Purdy's legs you know, really helped spark quite a few drives and was a big difference maker in the second half there. So I think those are going to be two two of the things to watch is that the Chiefs are going to play you know, a lot off of Christian McCaffrey, and then that frees up Brock Purdy to have a bunch of room to run.
2: I, and I think it's going to be, will the 49ers commit to the run game? Right, we've been rip, everyone's been ripping Baltimore for the last week and a half for not committing to the run game, which is theoretically the Chiefs' weakness, the weakness of that Chiefs' defense. Forty Nine ers have Christian McCaffrey. Will they commit to that run? And then can Brock Purdy throw enough against throw slash scramble enough against that Chiefs' defense um, to basically keep the Chiefs honest in stopping McCaffrey? That's 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 what I my key is.
1: The, the teeth of that Chiefs defense is the secondary. Um, you know, great over-the-top and run support help from Justin Reed, but the duo that seems to go overlooked a little bit in the NFL um, because their names aren't as common and as popular as some other, other names, but Trent McDuffie and Legereus Sneed um, really have Legereus Sneed has only allowed one touchdown all season to opposing wide receivers, and he's often shadowing number one for the other team. Um, in this case, you'll get a mix of Ayuk and Debo Samuel. Um, but Trent McDuffie on the other side, the benefactor of the Tyree kill trade, he's, you know, a great pairing duo with Sneed. And so it's much of a no fly zone. So the, the interesting thing with Brock Purdy is kind of his niche and his comfort is the short over the middle throws are most likely going to be open. And so I think a lot of that's going to play into his strengths. It's just my, my thing is I've gone back and watched a few, like a little bit of tape over the past couple of weeks with the 49ers playing in their, in, in big games I will say Brock Purdy has been very fortunate in some of those games that he has had about four or five um, very poorly thrown footballs that could have been more disastrous than they actually were. Um, Obviously, the big helmet bounce off the helmet catch that sparked them a little bit against the Detroit Lions. That was one that could have very easily gone down as an interception. Um, There was another throw against the Packers where had he actually, the Packers had actually secured the ball. He had a pretty wide open lane for another pick six against Brock Purdy. And so that could have changed the outcome of the game. Um, I think Brock Purdy's gotten a little fortunate in some of those instances where I don't, where I think maybe the Chiefs defense is a little bit more formidable. Um, but yeah, we're talking a lot about defense for the Chiefs and offense for the 49ers. But on the flip side of that, the 49ers defense didn't look great against the Lions in the first half. And Maybe so we'll see
2: we'll, this playoffs at all. Yeah. Uh,
1: and that's one thing that I think is leading people to believe this is going to be a shootout is their defense could get picked apart very easily by Mahomes and the chiefs as Mahomes always steps up well in the playoffs. Um, it's the unknown for me is how much is Travis Kelsey going to be taken out of this game? And can Isaiah Pacheco and Travis Kelsey, or, and Rasheed Rice step up in those instances, um, being young players for this team? And then are the Chiefs going to see drops in the Super Bowl, much like they saw all season? Or is it going to be the, the receiving core that we've seen in the playoffs this year that has made big catches and big moments, and that's undetermined? But one of the big things is that 49ers defense has a lot of stars on it, but that defensive line doesn't seem to be getting a lot of pressure recently.
2: But in one, that's the thing that's about the NFL. right? We say it in the regular season, right? Any given Sunday, but it, it's one game, right? Who is going to be the star of the one game that's going to make the difference here between uh, between winning and losing, right? Who do you think that star is going to be, right? Maybe it's Chris Jones, and he does get push, and that does make the difference. Maybe. Uh, Chase Young finally has a good game. Yeah, he's been going of a factor, right? He, ever since you just he need was one traded, player to make plays.
1: Yeah, ever since Chase Young has been traded for, he's I have really not heard much about him and all of the focus clearly for due reason and purpose has been on Nick Bosa, but Chase Young was brought in to be an X factor and we haven't seen that yet and so we'll see if that's the case. Um in Super On Super Bowl Sunday. And like you said, it is one game. The thing that I have seen so far, at least what the media has presented, is the 49ers are making a lot of complaints about their situations and scenarios that they've been put in. When asked about the Chiefs' offensive line, Nick Bosa says they hold a lot. Um, their ownership has talked about the Chiefs getting a lot of calls so far this season. Um, I'm not going to get into that dispute. Go look at Nick Wright. He did put out a lot of facts about that. Um, but the the Chiefs are acting like a team that has been here before and is ready for the game. And the 49ers have kind of been acting like the new kids on the block. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of what we saw with the Ravens was a similar notion. They kind of got popped in the mouth and then they made a, a lot of uncharacteristic plays. Um, we'll see what San Francisco does in this game. But as of right now, I mean, clearly I'm a Chiefs fan, but I do have more confidence in the quiet and, um, you know, just biz business, you know, in-, in the mode of business as usual that we're getting out of the Chiefs players and their personnel rather than kind of the talk and the outspokenness that we're getting from the 49ers side of things
2: yep it's gonna be a fun game either either way right
1: but I was gonna I was gonna ask you that is it actually a fun game for um a fan who is I guess you do have affiliation because of Brock Purdy but right, I do if yes. you so some of your your family and friends are you know not as aligned with having Brock Purdy as you know that connection with San Francisco is this actually a Super Bowl that is that is drawing interest to some people.
2: I mean, I'm I'm still not a good gauge of that because I've converted most of my uh, family to at least fringe Iowa State fans, which means they're at least fringe Brock Purdy fans. Um, but like around the office, for example, I'm not hearing a ton of talk about the Super Bowl. Not that I probably would have with any matchup that doesn't involve the Vikings or the Packers. Um, so I, d- I don't know. I'm probably not the best gauge of that. but nationally, nationally, I think the rankings are going to be there because either somebody likes everybody or somebody hates everybody. Hating the team in the Super Bowl is almost as good for the rankings right. as liking a team in the Super Bowl. So,
1: I mean, yeah, there's no better um, gauge of that than when the Patriots were <laughs> consistently in the Super Bowl. Uh, a lot of people tuned in just because they... Didn't want to see Tom Brady win another one. Um, and we're blatantly cheering against him, as I can vividly remember I was in the Atlanta Falcons Patriots Super Bowl. Um, the iconic 20, 28 to three comeback. Um, but still, either way. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great game. Um, my mom is very excited for Brock Purdy to take the field. Um, she She's thinks he's adorable. She is rooting against the Chiefs. She is rooting against the Chiefs. She is wow. sick and tired. She is sick and tired of the media on like Mahomes and Brittany Mahomes and Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. So she is a Brock Purdy fan. Uh she thinks he's adorable. Um, another member of my family is also a Brock Purdy fan because of his looks. So I guess that's one way to cheer for the Super Bowl. <laughs> so needless to say, uh it's it's going to be interesting uh, here in Kansas City for myself. Um, either way, I don't think at the end of this I'm going to be upset. Um, clearly, the Chiefs have had their success, and you know I'm just living in an area era of Chiefs um, where it's easy to be a Chiefs fan right now, and a lot of success continues coming our way. Um, but it was tough to be a, a Chiefs fan back in like the. Matt Castle era, so we've had our our old days, but Mike, as you'll agree, we've had enough success. It's time for another yep. team, but it's certainly not like San Francisco is in dire need of another Super Bowl either. So
2: it is it uh, it is time for you to uh, to suffer more. You've had your success now; you need to go suffer for a, a couple, you know, ten more years, twenty more years.
1: I think that suffering into... might not take place until Mahomes. Uh, is not on the chief's roster anymore
2: granted uh, granted uh, San Francisco certainly hasn't suffered recently either, especially if you count uh the warriors in their market. Exactly. so
1: yep. yeah Any other uh, going from the going from the forty nineers of old to the giants to then the warriors, they've had a couple plenty of success yeah, couple successes so
2: yes, they absolutely have absolutely have. Any other thoughts on the Super Bowl before we dive into our signature segments here?
1: I was just going to say, what's your score prediction?
2: I'm already on as a write that down prediction of having this a one score game. I'm just going to go with a very, very bland 27 24 Niners. I know it's bland and boring, but that's what I'm going
1: with. um, I think it's going to be an incredibly low scoring game. Uh, I'm going to go 21 20 it being a one-point victory for the Chiefs. Um, San Francisco has had kicking troubles all year, and so I'm going to rely on them missing an extra point in this mm. game to get me to that score. So I'm wow. not writing that down, obviously, but that is the how we yeah, get 21-20. So, yeah.
2: Nice,
1: nice. 21-20 Chiefs. There, there it is. Nice. Well, with that being said, I guess... I do. I have some explaining to do in Mike's stupid rules, and we'll get into that here in a second. You
2: you have you have a situation for me. I didn't see this. So explain to me what happened and I'll do my best to get you the rule.
1: So I am a um, fan of affiliation for Purdue being I went there for grad school. So obviously with Purdue being very good in basketball, it's easy to watch some of their games right now, uh, especially when there's a top 10 matchup with Wisconsin on Sunday. And there's no football to watch on Sunday. So I didn't I enjoyed watching that game. But at the end of that game, uh, close game, Wisconsin was trying to make a comeback against Purdue. Uh, there was a inbounds play after a made basket. So that player for Purdue was allowed to run the baseline during that play. There were two really two controversies. Well, one true controversy in Wisconsin's eyes. But then another controversy in my eyes that left me question, and hence the reason, Mike Super Rules of this week, is this. So on this play, as the Purdue player was running the baseline, he went to inbounds the ball by jumping up and was going to pass. That closing lane or the passing lane closed down. He hesitated and I said he already jumped. He landed back in like out back out of bounds, you know along the baseline uh, with the ball and then presume to run the baseline again and then inbound the ball uh, to a Purdue teammate. So my question was, is, it, is jumping while you are attempting to pass the ball out of bounds on an inbounds play a travel? Because most of the, like, likewise, while you're in the court of play, if you were to jump up, And land with the basketball, that is a travel if it's in your possession. So, Mike, do you were you able to find anything in the rule book that speaks to this?
2: So, first of all, what I want to say is, in a situation where you can't run the baseline, then yes, that is going to be uh, that is going to be. Wouldn't it's not technically called a travel, um, but it is going to be a inbounds violation resulting in a turnover. Um, The symbol is the same, so you can see why you think it's a travel, but it's not technically a travel. Um, But what I want to point to um, for this, right, is two things. So first is going to be Rule 7, Section 4, Article 6, that says, After a successful goal or goaltending violation, the team not credited with the score shall make the throw-in from the end of the court where the goal was made, and the thrower may move along the end line and make the throw-in from any point out of bounds on the end line. They may also move along the end line when a couple of other situations, like if a foul occurs immediately after a made basket, et cetera, et cetera. Um, right, so that part of it is saying, right, that they can that that's essentially the run the baseline rule. Right. The other thing I want to um want to talk about is um what is called a um a designated spot right so rule 7 article rule 7 section 3 article 2 talks about a designated spot essentially that's the location of the throw in right um i won't get into how um you determine the location of the throw in but essentially the point is um it specifically says there is no um, there is no designated spot for the throw-in after a made basket. And um, the throw-in violations, um, which are covered um, in Section 6 of Rule 7, only pertain to a designated spot. So that's the other thing you're going to get to. Since there's no designated spot the rule for a throw-in violation for moving your feet is not present because there is no designated spot for that throw-in. And that's why jumping is going to be legal. Presuming he jumped from out of bounds and landed still out of bounds.
1: Yeah. That is that is what happened. He did jump out of bounds and land in or out of bounds. Sorry. But yeah. the, I was gonna say the other controversy was he was very close to stepping on the inline. Uh, becoming an inbounds player, which obviously would have been a turnover. Um, so that was the bigger controversy that Wisconsin was yelling about or arguing with. Um, but for me personally, it was a self-inflection question on: you know, Is jumping while out of bounds with a running baseline is that illegal? Is that a turnover? And you're I didn't good. think the refs would miss that, but there it is.
2: Questioning yep, on that one, you're good. Basketball, sweet. All right, so we will now move into our Write That Down prediction segment, starting with what is going to be a quick accountability session this week. Only two predictions coming off the board. First one was from Josh. Uh, he predicted back in mid-December that Jordan Love would throw for 300 yards in at least two more games. This year he only did it once. He did have multiple games over 275, um, but did not get multiple games over 300. So Josh gets a nah, nah. nah. And Kyle, who predicted that Bobby Wood Jr. for the Royals would be a and fifty-plus million extension this offseason, he did sign a, an 11 year, $288 million extension um, just Monday afternoon. So for that, Kyle gets a ding, 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 ding. ding, ding, ding. So there you go. That is it for our accountability session, it's just those two. Um, Ariane was not able to join us this week, but he did send us a prediction. Uh, He said that the Super Bowl is going to be decided by 10 or more points. 10 or more. To me, this is either a single or a double. What do you guys think? I
0: mean, historically.
1: I was going to say, didn't we have a prediction that said these lines? I I had
2: that it would be a one-score game, and we gave me a single for that. The, The line is currently San Francisco by one and a half.
1: There are not many games in the NFL that are a double digit point victory.
2: Yeah, there are. Uh,
1: Well, I feel it. I thought it was more common than not that it was not a two score.
2: I mean, it might be the, uh, it's quite possible that a majority are single digits, but I wouldn't say it's not very many that are.
0: It looks like historically 2018 through 2021 have been 10 or more. And I haven't gotten back further than that. Um,
2: But 22, 3, and... Yeah, yeah. 2021 was, um,
0: was. was, 2016
2: was, 2014 was. But the line's at
0: one and a half, and I don't think it's going to be a blowout. I would go for a double here.
2: I'm okay with that.
1: Yeah, I'm okay with a double. All
2: right, double it is. I am going to stick in the world of college basketball but go away from the Cyclones and go to my uh, University of Minnesota Gophers who just picked up a big overtime win against Northwestern on Saturday. I'm going to predict that the Gophers, despite winning two conference games all of last year, are going to find a way into the NCAA tournament this year.
1: Okay, mm. Wyatt. So as of right now, Jill Lenardi doesn't even have them on the bubble. Uh, then Palm... The- they're 70,
2: 76th in the Ken Palm, yep. Yep. With a strength of schedule
1: of... They're 140th in strength of schedule.
2: They're 91st in the NAT with zero quad one wins. Oof. Oh, wow. And the uh Bart-Tovic gives them a, uh, a 0.4% chance of making the tournament.
1: Okay, so that's a home run. I was leaning
2: up to heavily. Zero, it's up to 0.5% chance. And oh. that's all for... And that's they basically give them a 0% chance of an at-large bid. That's a 0.5% chance of winning the Big Ten tournament. And I think it's a little higher than that, but I still think it's home run. But, I mean, I don't get a vote. I'm also biased.
0: I, my gut read was a triple, but... I could certainly go for a home run here. I I would not be mad about that. That seems very well, unlikely. Well, what do you
1: say? I say home run. So it's yeah, up to I'll you. I say now. home run.
0: Okay. All right. There it is. Do you think from Josh this week? He still
2: alive? He is. He's still alive. Looking forward to this Super Bowl. And He's going to continue on the Brock Purdy bandwagon and say that Purdy has more passing yards than Pat Mahomes in this game. I'm thinking double.
0: I'm, I single. Let's go.
1: I was trying to go to FanDuel here to get some odds on this, but not a sponsor. What are, yeah.
2: what are the over-unders for passing yards? for Mahomes, So Mahomes, the over-under is at 262. And for Purdy, it's at 245. So he's not favored to do so.
0: That means it's probably a double then.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'd lean oh. towards double for that.
0: Yeah, I'll change my tune. The more I think about it, the more it's actually probably a double. As much as I would love for it to be a single because I'm on that Brock Purdy train. Realistically, this is a double. And I mean, right, even it. yeah, I was going to say
1: even the all spread for over 275 for Purdy is 182. And Mahomes 275 all is plus 116. So definite disparity there.
0: Yeah, Well we'll give him a double. And that works. I will predict that Christian McCaffrey will have zero rushing touchdowns in the Super Bowl.
1: Anytime yeah. touchdown scorer, Christian McCaffrey's minus mm-hmm. 220.
2: But that, this is just for rushing.
0: Yep. How, how much do you think those Chiefs can stop the run game for CMC?
2: Or alternatively, would,
0: how good do you think the 43rd passing is a, game is going to be?
2: I would say this is a double. Yeah, that's what I say. I agree.
0: I'll take it. Let's hope for a little more, but I'll take it. What do you got, Kyle?
1: I am predicting that Rasheed Rice will have two total touchdowns in the Super Bowl.
2: Two total touchdowns in the Super Bowl. Hmm. Um
0: two exactly, right? Not not three. It's sorry. I, this meant to be two at least two Alright, two or more. That does change that. Uh,
2: double, triple, probably double. I'm thinking that's double. what I was
0: thinking initially. I was just looking really? at the uh, at stats. I mean it's be, it's between a double and a triple.
2: I could be talked into triple.
1: I so definitely think this is gonna be a triple because the I mean everybody's it seems like there's a large amount of money going on Pacheco with touchdowns and maybe more than one touchdown. And if that's the case, then Rasheed Rice definitely isn't getting that and Travis Kelsey is probably getting the rest of it.
2: Yeah. I alright, I'll go with triple, that's fine.
0: And and looking at even throughout this whole season, I mean, he hasn't had a ton per game either.
1: I mean, two score, two total touchdowns. Rasheed yeah. Rice is plus 1,000
0: odds. Aye. All right, all right, all right. Triple it is. So with three doubles a triple and a home run that concludes our write that down prediction segment which means we're at the end of the episode thank you so thank you so much for dropping by this week's episode of the 8311 cast episode 257 from now until next week's episode be sure to check with the socials at 8311 cast wherever you find us signing off with the 8311 cast we have your hosts Kyle Mersch
2: Mike Ludwig and
0: Wyatt Teeter we'll talk to y'all again next week go Cyclones
2: go Cyclones One's down
0: go Cyclones horns
1: down.